0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the air.
1: There were things about writing about her that were were freeing.
0: I think of her as, as someone outside yourself. Maybe be kinder exactly. to her than you
1: would to yourself. I think exactly. She's encountering herself. I was going to be able to look at the world, not just through my protagonist's eyes, but through the eyes of the people that she met. I'm Sarah Fenske.
0: Margaret Hermes began writing her new novel 39 years ago. She was a new divorcee traveling in Europe when she wrote the first chapter of a novel about a new divorcee traveling in Europe. Now she hastens to add that the main character wasn't really her. She wrote a few chapters, but then she shelved them. Almost four decades passed before she returned to the book, finished it, and got it published. The book is called The Opposite of Chance, and joining us today to talk about it is Margaret Hermes. She is a writer who grew up in Chicago and has been based in St. Louis for the past 44 years. Margaret, welcome. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, Margaret, your novel is about a woman named Betsy. What do we know about her as the story begins?
1: Well, um, Betsy is 32 years old in 1981, so her childhood spanned the 1950s in Milwaukee, and she was very much a product of that time and that place. She would have been the kind of kid who was a proud member of the Clean Plate Club, <laughs> as, as well as a loyal follower of the Mickey Mouse Club. So she she was a... Um, you know, a good girl. And she attended Catholic schools from kindergarten through graduate school. She was not only growing up in a sheltered environment in Milwaukee, she just stayed in Milwaukee. She was there following her early marriage and then after her divorce. And despite her longing to travel, she never even left the Midwest until she takes off on her trip when she goes solo backpacking through Europe.
0: Solo backpacking through Europe, so that is a big step for somebody who's never left the Midwest. Is she prepared for what greets her? Not at all. <laughs> and I guess that's that's there is the drama of the
1: novel, right is is her encountering this this whole new world? her encountering the people, the customs, uh, the very, very different places, but also. I think of it as an internal journey as well. I mean, she's encountering herself um, in these various uh, supposedly chance relationships. So you mentioned these
0: relationships, and this book does have a very unusual structure that I ended up just appreciating so much. We get one chapter about Betsy, and then it's followed by a chapter where we get to know somebody that she has met. And in some ways, we we grow to understand them in much different ways by how we might see them through her eyes. I'm wondering if that was always the plan going into this book, that you'd have her perspective alternate with all these other
1: characters who also find themselves in Europe. When I set out to write the stories about Betsy, they were going to be simply stories about Betsy. They were, I assumed, going to be a novel, but I was happy to treat them as a collection of connected stories as well. And I wrote the first three stories, submitted them to literary magazines. They were published. And then when I was about to tackle the fourth, I realized that I was not engaged in the novel in the way that I should be. Mm. And I realized it was because Betsy's perspective was narrow. Her focus was narrow and her processing of the world that she engaged with was also limited. So I, I became stuck, really stuck. And I put that aside for well, 25 years later, <laughs> wow. I, I was in an airport um, in, in uh, Montreal and was beginning what was a difficult trip. I had lost my passport at the outset. Um, lots of things had gone wrong. And I was feeling fairly glum, and I was sitting in this airport when this startlingly handsome muslim man came and said his prayers and i watched him intently i i really at the time felt i had never seen anyone so gorgeous i was transfixed and what i was very much aware of was that he had his hair very badly dyed at some point and it and the gray was growing out hmm. and For some reason, um, for which I'm grateful, I have no idea why, but this man stuck in my brain and I would periodically think about him and think about writing about him. And one day when I went back to the idea of tackling the Betsy stories, something really clicked and I thought this man was going to be my entry back into those stories. I was going to be able to look at the world not just through my protagonist's eyes, but through the eyes of the people that she met. And that gave me the structure.
0: And this does end up becoming such a wonderful story in this novel. You sort of draw on imagining um, this man's world and and we see the world through his eyes. But that can be such a tightrope act for an author that you're not just writing about um, the world through the perspective of a Midwestern woman. You're now doing this through somebody who has such a different background than yourself. Did you have some trepidation
1: uh, beginning to, to write about this man? Great trepidation. I, in fact, spent months, um, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much time I spent in research on this book, but I certainly read as much as I could about um, making a pilgrimage to Mecca. And in doing that, um, I, I was you know, really concerned, of course, with trying to represent the, the trappings, the visuals, to put it in that kind of a context, which wouldn't, I thought, be familiar to many readers. But also I I had to really work to try and get a picture of the religious aspects of it and, and the, the, the exteriors, but also the internal spiritual journey that this man was on. So I was very, very trepidatious. And finally, um, after, having written it uh, and coming close to the publication of the novel, I did approach three um, Bosnian Muslim friends and had them go over it with a fine tooth comb and was really relieved. Um, mm. they they did find one thing that uh, I was very happy that they noted that I needed to change.
0: Ah, So you did make a, a change based on it, but it sounds like all that research did pay off. Like for the most part, um, this was something that rang true to them.
1: Very, very much so. Um, I. I was really heartened by their response.
0: So you mentioned all the research that went into this, and that was very clear to me reading this book. And I wouldn't say that this is the most obvious thing. This isn't what will strike people maybe when they first read it. It's it's a great yarn. You can follow it just like a story. But I kept thinking, wow, like she knows so much about what life would have been like uh, for an Irish man living in, in 1981, which is, again, this is something that, that's different from your worldview. It, is this part of why, even after you picked this book up 25 years later, there were years before you were ready to submit this to
1: a publisher? No, that's exactly true. Um, that, that, and I have to say that I also, during those years, I was spending a lot of time uh, working on environmental issues. So I would take time off from the book and, and devote myself to my other uh, hobby, <laughs> but um, the the. Thing about the research was that sometimes it just became overwhelming. I, I particularly, uh, the research that I did on the Irish hunger strike and Bobby Sands, mm. the the book would have been thirty pages longer if my editor hadn't um, put his. Put his red pen to the. <laughs> he had to, to pull that back a bit. He, he really did. I was, I was turning it into um, a, a history textbook or a, or a dissertation. It, uh, the novel was definitely suffering from my um, overwhelmingly uh, methodical research. <laughs> I, I even was including um, bits and pieces from Bobby S- Sands's diaries, songs, poems. I, I went too far. So
0: you went all in on the troubles. I mean this is it, it is certainly a great huge subject. I can see how you were so attracted to it. Was it hard then to follow your editor's
1: lead and, and prune that back? You know yes, it was but I, I knew I knew he was right. Um, we, we didn't always agree on on things We the editing process for us I think was a, a continuing negotiation. But he was absolutely right uh, about my uh, toning, toning down the chapter that, that would have been tantamount to four other chapters in the novel.
0: We're talking today to the author Margaret Hermes. Her new book is The Opposite of Chance. This was a book that was four decades in gestation. Tells the story of a Midwestern woman who sees her eyes open, and and we meet a number of other characters along the way as she travels through Europe. So Margaret, talking about Bobby Sands, one interesting part about this book, as I mentioned, you started it when you yourself were on a trip to Europe, but you ended up setting this in a different year than the year that you were there, and part of what was so interesting to me is you just changed it by one year. This isn't a big enough change that you wanted to introduce new technology or the world had changed in dramatic ways. What made you shift that timeline?
1: Well, be- because you're you're absolutely right. It was the um, hunger strike was a big reason for that, but there were also there were also other things going on in the United States and in Europe. There. There was the um, the marriage of Ch- uh, Diana and Charles, which figured uh, more prominently in my manuscript than it did in the uh, final book. There were things like the uh, baseball strike in the United States. All, all sorts of things that I felt would help the reader to set it in time much more than occurred in 1982. But also in, in the the fact of the the hunger strike and Bobby Sands, I mean, that was material that I really wanted to use, and Mm -hmm. 1982 would have been not the right year for that. So Mm -hmm. I, I did take the liberty of changing the year, but I also wanted to keep it very much close to the time in which I had taken my own trip, because I took, as a person traveling alone often does extensive notes i actually had notebooks filled with things with wonderful descriptions i thought um, that i used in the novel but also with details like uh, train schedules and even the contents of museums Hmm. so i was able to really rely on my notes from that trip that i had taken a year after the setting and so we, we know the notes came in handy and the
0: era came in handy. I'm wondering how much Betsy as a character draws on you. Certainly on paper, in a one sentence description, it seems like Betsy
1: is you. But you've said that's not the case. Well, I think it's not. Um, <laughs> uh, for, for one thing, I, I, um, Betsy, a big part of Betsy's experience um, as a traveler is her childlessness. Um, and I, in fact, had two young children at the time. Um, wow.
0: You were able to do this kind of trip. Um, you I, didn't
1: take the children, obviously. I did not. Um, and that's another story for another time. <laughs> sure. But that is but, a
0: big difference. I mean, certainly this is
1: something that Betsy, the fictional character, has grappled with in her marriage is, is right. the childlessness. Right. And, and that is a huge theme. Um, and... I, I think there were many ways in which I felt I was dissimilar from the character. And because of that, I think I had a real um, affection for her. You were able to um, think of her as, as someone outside yourself, maybe be kinder exactly. to her than you would to yourself. I think exactly. I mean, she's she is clearly flawed. Um, and as are we all. But there were things about writing about her that were were freeing for for me as a as a person as well. Um, the very fact that, from my perspective, Betsy, a big part of her journey was learning to trust, and I found that it's sort of understood that when someone has gone through a divorce, um, there's often trust issues that one feels for the opposite gender. Hmm. And yet, in my mind, um, the the biggest trust issues that one has to deal with following a divorce is learning how to trust yourself,
0: hmm. learning
1: how to trust your own judgment, um, not, not feeling um, that one is a victim, but that one is... Uh, an active participant in one's own life. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel like your trip to Europe um, that you took after your divorce helped you come to terms with, with some of those same issues?
1: Well, I, I think it did. It gave me um, a lot of distance from my particular situation. And I, it also opened me up to so many things, I mean, in, including you know friendships that carried on over time. Um, that, you know, that stemmed from that trip. It, it was a wonderful, freeing experience. And I, I like my protagonists, I was really alone um, for the first time, and I, I had also married young, and I had my children, and I was never responsible for myself in, in the way that I was on this trip. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm responsible for entertaining myself as well as for, you know, making all the practical decisions.
0: You really had to get to know yourself in in such an intimate way, being on the road with
1: yourself and only yourself. I did. And, And sometimes it was an extremely lonely experience, as I think solo travel is, but it was also a wonderful opportunity to explore my inner and my and the world, you know, my inner landscape as well. So I feel like this is such a good advertisement for people
0: taking that plunge and and traveling on your on their own. Uh, but I also feel like this book now coming to completion and how wonderfully it turned out. It's also maybe a reminder that if you have. Uh, chapters tucked away somewhere, but those chapters keep sort of nibbling at you that this is something that, this is a new year. This is maybe a chance to revisit it. Do you feel like in some ways there was a cleansing that was involved in in finishing this book that you couldn't let go?
1: Yeah, I, I was so pleased to see this finally be published because I had put so much of myself into it over such a long period of time. And it's interesting that you talk about something um, else surfacing. What what I'm working on now, I I had been working on a play um, when the pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. and then I was engrossed with uh, revising the novel and working with my editor. And then I thought I would be going back to the play, but somehow uh, working on a theater piece during a time when theaters were dark just didn't somehow work for me. Yeah. So I was, I was really searching for something and I wanted something wildly different from what I had done before. In a sense, it, it was ironic because I did pick up something I had done before. I'd written a children's book many years ago that has not yet been published and I decided to try to illustrate the book. Wow. I, yeah, this, this has
0: been a really creative time for you. I mean, you're you're taking big risks with your art.
1: Well, this is a, a, a risk in that I am definitely not an artist. I, I can't draw. So to create the illustrations for this book, um, I've relied on collage. And I have to say that this is something. This project has been bringing me real joy. I, I have had the, the pleasure of working with my hands, um, the, the pleasure of using my brain in a different way, but also um, being somebody who uh, has a house that is um, sinking in clutter. <laughs> I, I, I have had just the sheer fun of um, making these collages with only things that I, I find on my shelf or in my drawer, and um, the, uh, there's only one thing that I purchased during the course of uh, creating these, and that was a, a scouring pad <laughs> that I needed to, to make some hair. I couldn't find anything else that worked quite the same. But everything but else, it, this was found objects. Absolutely, and so much fun. I mean, um, a, a little old pocket watch of my father's. A, a, twig from the garden, um, uh, shells that I had collected as a child, so you can imagine how much clutter there is in this house. Well, um, Margaret, I think this is just wonderful. I feel like this is
0: maybe the perfect way for us here on St. Louis on the Air to start the new year. I mean, just hearing the buoyancy in your voice and and these creative projects, I hope that if people are feeling stuck, I, I hope they're listening to this because it's just it's been so exciting to hear and also to talk about this wonderful book that, you know, four decades later, here it is among us. So, Margaret, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been fun for me.
0: This episode was produced by Sarah Fensky with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. It was mixed and edited by Jane. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. <laughs> Understanding starts here.